There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Parents are validating and participating in the child's passion rather than the child being told, no, that's an obsession, put it away, you need to go do your homework or mm -hmm. you need to go do those worksheets. And so when there's that freedom and permission to just follow that path, there's so much, much satisfaction with on the child's part. There's bonding on the part of the parent and the child because the child feels that the parent cares about what they care about. And the parent is emboldened and enabled because they have new languages with which to communicate to their child. So I see so many upsides to this approach. And the whole idea here is recognizing that there's a natural way to learn and that children naturally love learning. So our responsibility as parents is not to conform and twist and shape them into the shape and the form that society thinks they ought to be in and the way that they ought to learn, but recognizing that maybe there's something to it that we can uh, leverage and build upon that natural desire uh, so that that child continues to love learning throughout their life. And welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is the second episode in the second section. This one is called An Introduction to Passion-Driven Education. So this show is a very nice follow-up to the previous show with Lenore Skenazy, which was really about the culture of fear, especially in the schools that children are growing up in. The messaging of the schools obviously affects society and culture in numerous ways. But beneath fear there is some very valid concerns that parents do have about the safety of their children and also concerns about education itself once people make or even start to ponder that huge decision of taking children out of school. So today, Connor and I will talk about several elements of this, including letting go of the need for structure in an educational environment that is certainly a belief that is schooled into us all from a very, very early age, addressing this kind of fear of children missing out on what they should be learning. We'll talk a little bit more about the de-schooling process, identifying and deleting schooled-in mental programs that can hold us back in one way or another, and certainly, uh, I know this, affect our interactions with others 
These are things that can affect people's interactions with their own children for the rest of their lives if they're not addressed. So we'll talk about de-schooling as well. And even though this was four years ago, we do spend some time talking about protection from dangerous influence. Now, if your children are in the school, the dangerous influence they encounter is built into the curriculum and the environment. But outside of school where, you know, kids are learning all the time. So what are they doing with devices? What games are they playing? What are they watching? Connor and I talk about instead of what Lenore Skenazy would have called a bubble wrap approach to protection of children, getting children to think critically and defensively about the kinds of influences that might be targeting them. You will also hear, I think for the first time in this Essential School Sucks series, the term unschooling. That is something we're going to be exploring more in future episodes. I will define it for you now as letting children learn in the same way that we learn as adults. Completely passion-driven, interest-based, and self-directed. There's a large movement around unschooling. It's only picked up in the last couple of years. But we'll be back with more examination of the philosophy of unschooling in future shows in this particular section. And finally, another thread that runs through this conversation with Connor, the importance of not only passion-driven education, but purposeful education. It takes us back to the very, very first episode in The Essential School Sucks about John Taylor Gatto, the teacher who stood up and spoke out. I hope you've heard that one. And when he was a public school teacher in New York, the opportunities that he created for young people to feel like they were actually having an impact, a cause and effect impact on the real world. Contrast that to the purposeless nature of the work that children are forced to do in the schools. Stay tuned after the conversation to learn more about how you can support the mission and the message of the School Sucks Project as we continue to curate this collection for you. And, of course, look forward to the future of the School Sucks Project. Thank you for listening. Here's my conversation with Connor Boyack. Hey, everybody. This is Brett. Welcome back to the show. Today is January 31st, 2017. And my guest is Connor Boyack. Folks, sometimes a show is so succinct and clear and on target and has such a descriptive title that no introduction is really necessary. But I'm going to give it one. So somebody just tagged me in a post the other day. It said, listen to School Sucks podcast. And I think this was a suggestion uh, for somebody who wasn't agreeing with them about some particular topic on Facebook. I always appreciate when people do this. Listener's name was Andrew. Just say W. I don't know if he wants his whole identity given away just because he tagged me. So let's say the person does that and they come to School Sucks Project and whoa, there's a lot going on there. And we have a page, you know, if you're new, start here, and it kind of explains what the show is about and gives you a couple good routes. But one of the things I've thought about frequently and I kind of work on in the background is a way to package all of this up and make it easier to pass along to the uninitiated. We, of course, are initiated, so that is unnecessary. But to somebody who is new to this, it is quite overwhelming. Connor Boyack has a book called Passion Driven Education. It's 180 pages long, and I think it does. I forgot to ask him if he even listens to School Sucks because, you know, we've come from, you know, two different books, two different authors, but wound up on the same page on so many important issues when it comes to schooling versus home education. And in this book that he wrote, he's managed to capture almost every important thing that I've tried to convey, both against school 
and for home education. So we had a great discussion this morning, and even this podcast would be a terrific primer to send along on the topic of home education, and more specifically, Connor's vision of passion-driven education. So if you are that person who was sent here, hi, thanks for coming. Here's my discussion with Connor Boyack. His website is connorboyack.com. You can also, if you want to learn more about this book we're going to discuss, Passion Driven Education, you can go to passiondriveneducation.com. Links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, everybody, and take care. So I'm happy to welcome, for surprisingly the first time to School Sucks, Connor Boyack. Hi, Connor. How are you today? I am very well. Thanks for having me on. You're joining me to discuss a book you wrote recently called Passion Driven Education. And uh, I just read the book yesterday, and I've got uh, a lot of great notes. It seems like we have similar influences. You uh, mentioned John Taylor Gatto. Uh, in the book several times, Gatto wrote the foreword. That's something I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of the libertarian messages on education, along with Peter Gray, Sudbury School. You even threw in some H.L. Mencken quotes, which were really, <laughs> like, uh, impactful. When I first started to learn about this stuff, That like Mencken, just what he could say in a couple lines, uh, really told the story of school uh, very well. So... I want to compliment you, first of all, because you condensed so much of what I think the really important messages of my show have been over the last seven years um, relating to not just the problems with school, but the benefits uh, of pursuing home education into an 180-page book. So I wanted to say uh, I, I certainly appreciate the work you've done here. It's a great resource. Thanks. I mean, I, definitely from my own experience, having studied these things over the years and, and coming to these ideas or being exposed to them over time, it is kind of a daunting task to take, you know, so many ideas, so many processes, so many philosophies and, and pack them in. But the goal here, Brett, was to to have it be concise enough that it's not intimidating for a parent, right? Like yeah. a new parent of new kids, they, they can't read a 500-page research heavy tome, right, about all the problems and the solutions. And so I had to find a way to say, like, you know, you're overworked, stressed out, tired mom. How do we get all this stuff packed into a level where she can breeze through it, kind of walk away and understand and maybe go back to the book from time to time for a little pick me up or a little hand holding as she begins to toy with these ideas? Absolutely. So that's where I'd like to focus most of our discussion. But I'd like to start with, with kind of a, a fun question. I think we're going to we're going to skip past like definitely the first chapter in your book where you talk about a lot of the problems of the the school system. Uh, the title of my show suggests we're certainly on board with you. And I've worked for a long time refining my elevator pitch uh, for the, the introductory conversation to the problem of school, uh, especially from a historical perspective. So I would yeah. like to hear – I feel like mine is a little like worn out at this point because I've told it so many times. Sure. But I'd like to hear your version of that story. So the, the story as I understand it and have looked into it over the years is this. Uh, during the progressive era especially, but even before that, you had reformers who saw in Prussia a, an ordered society 
based on top-down control that could be packaged and emulated. So in Prussia, they saw a government and a system of obedience uh, and, and compulsion that from the outside looking in was very effective. Citizens were submissive. They were part of this, uh, you know, many different government programs, especially in education. Uh, there wasn't a lot of rebellion or problems. Uh, from the outside looking in, Prussia was doing it right in the eyes of many of these reformers who were more progressive and open to using government uh, means to achieve societal ends. And so when you had some of the American reformers looking at that and even traveling to Prussia to learn from them and figure out how to replicate that system, that that the core philosophy and the approach behind that system is what then migrated over to America for implementation, uh, changing us from the, you know, one class schoolhouse, the community based education, the the parental involvement and the the delegation or the hiring of a teacher to supplement that fundamental parental role. That philosophy and that approach began to shift drastically into this more industrialized top down approach where children were seen as part of a system rather than as individuals and part of families. It was really the convergence, or I should say the, the divergence between the family-based approach to governance and societal structure into this uh, state-based approach where we are part of something bigger. The family is subordinated to the state. There are, there are many influences that converged here around the same time, and Prussia's advances in statist uh, systematization really helped the reformers in America incorporate that in a very systematic fashion and in a very quick fashion. Things changed very quickly once that Prussian model was adopted. And so just very briefly, even more so, it was a shift in philosophy between individualism to collectivism in education, certainly, but in many uh, other aspects of our lives as well. Yeah, absolutely. We're totally on the same page there. And one of the important takeaways from from what you've just said and what I've said about it is that school is a powerful tool of social transformation that is guided by people who are not you, parents, you know, and I, I think that that's a really important thing to, to realize. Um, once you understand the implications of it, whether it was, you know, the, the Prussian uh, elites or the scientific managers of the progressive era or even these other weird interests that got involved, like the Ku Klux Klan in the, in the Northwest in the 1920s. And, you know, even today, people are very suspicious about a kind of, you know, UN, UNESCO influence on, on mm. the schools because people realize that if you control this, you can. And I, and I don't think it's often done with like – a great deal of malevolence. People are afire with purpose, and they want to reshape society. And this is the the best tool for doing so. Um, well, yeah, and, go ahead. And if I can, if I can, Brett, let me interject and say, uh, guilty as charged, because you're right to point out at the end that I think this is something that is not just people uh, do it nefariously. Even people who see themselves as doing it uh, for more beneficial purposes recognize the importance of reaching children. They are, mm -hmm. we often like to say, the future. Um, and so we're not talking about this today, but I've got a series of children's books that teach the principles of liberty and economics, free market economics, called the Tuttle Twins. And these books are designed for children age 5 to 10, recognizing that these children aren't getting that type of material. They're not being exposed to the, the principles and the philosophy of freedom until maybe college, if they're lucky, or later on when they're adults, when they have to overcome years of 
programming and indoctrination that was quite antithetical to those ideas. And so here I am as an author and as part of the, the work that I do at our institute, producing literature and trying to appeal to the minds through their parents of young children recognizing that if we plant seeds of liberty, you know, what is that going to germinate and develop into 20 years from now? So, so even myself, you know, where I see doing it for beneficial and, and noble purposes of trying to help children understand these, these core, uh, philosophies and virtues, even I recognize that you need to reach out to the children. You need to, to do that. And so it's kind of a benign, it's like a gun, right? Like it's just a tool that can be used for good or for bad. But we as parents certainly need to recognize that many people have used it for bad. There are yeah. many people who intentionally try and use that opportunity or that process to indoctrinate and subordinate these children. That's wrong. We can do it the right way, but uh, but certainly we need to have eyes open as parents to recognize that there are people with nefarious purposes doing this as well. Yeah, I do want to uh, point out just along those lines, by the way, one of these books was based on I Pencil, right? The Leonard Reed essay on yeah. uh, market uh -huh. cooperation. Very, very cool. Uh, and what is that one called? Just so people know. So that one is called, uh, they're all part of the Tuttle Twins series. That one is called uh, The Tuttle Twins and the Miraculous Pencil. It's one of uh, five books that we have. Each one is based on kind of this classic uh, text, but that one's a very popular one. Excellent. So, yeah, I heard this interview that you did, I think, for Mises with Jeff Deist, and you were yeah. talking about writing these um, libertarian children's books. And you said that it was kind of an exercise in validating what they're already being taught about how to be, you know, good and cooperative people in their own lives. <laughs> and then I think right. a lot of us realize, even if we never make it explicit for ourselves, um, that stuff doesn't really seem to scale, <laughs> you know, when it comes to uh, the state. So I, I, I'm glad, Brett, that you pointed that out because I think it's going to directly tie back into what we're talking about with passion-driven education. Here's how. What I told Jeff was, yeah, these ideas we te as parents teach our children, right? Don't hurt people. Don't steal their stuff. Like, and and it's only that later in life that we encumber those societal principles with all these exceptions. Right. Oh, no, if he has a badge, it's OK. Or if it's a majority vote, yeah, that rule doesn't apply. Uh, but these principles make sense to and are understood by young children. We teach them to them. And that validation comes in saying, no, there are no exceptions. No one should hurt other people. No one should take their stuff. It's the same with passion-driven education. When we teach young children, and, and children naturally are this way, that they're so curious and they have a passion for learning and they soak it in and everything is a wonder and a joy and they're, they're just innately curious about the world around them. And it's only when you shove them into a school system that you suppress and encumber that natural desire with all sorts of exceptions. No, you, you can't learn that. You have to learn this. No, you can't follow your interest. You have to you know do this assignment. And so much like the Tuttle Twins, this approach of passion-driven education or whatever you want to call it becomes validating what is natural, validating what children already have at that young age. Absolutely. Uh, and you talk a lot uh, along these lines in the book about a natural learning process. And I think this connects a little bit to the school discussion we were just having. One of the, the top uh, pro-public school arguments that exists out there uh, and you cover in the book is is structure, right? Mm, yeah. uh, and and you describe this as natural learning being discarded in favor 
of an arbitrary process. Now, a lot of people in my audience are home educators, but as I polled them um, for various reasons and, you know, asked questions about, um, uh, you know, their home education environments, I, I still get the sense that structure is kind of a hard thing to let go of. And sure. as I thought about, you know, even uh, I'm in the process now of like, trying to design some courses. So I was throwing out some ideas uh, towards the audience. And one of them was called Productive Unschooling, uh, motiva Motivation in Organization for Independent Learners, which is not something you want to throw at kids, I think, when they're six. But when someone's <laughs> like, you know, 12 or 13 years old, and they start to like, maybe ask what's next as they tr transition into adulthood, maybe some of these skills would be good to have. So what are your thoughts? Obviously, we understand that there are great opportunity costs in the structuring of institutionalized schooling. But, you know, as we talk maybe about what your own home education environment looks like, what would you have to say about structure? So it's a great point. And for myself, you know, I, I uh, was educated, quote unquote, in, in public school. I, I was not uh, did not have the opportunity to homeschool. It wasn't really a thing in San Diego where I grew up. My parents weren't really exposed to it. And looking back, they now wish, you know, they had been aware of it and, you know, had the opportunity and tried it out. So I come from a public schooling background. And when I go around the country speaking to homeschool audiences on this topic of passion-driven education, this is one of the biggest concerns and the biggest challenges. When we do the Q&A after, time and again, parents are saying, you know, but I wasn't homeschooled and I, I feel that I have to cling to structure it's all I know. I just feel this like subconscious affinity yeah. for structure. And that's hard to separate from. So so here's how I, I resolve that concern. I say, look, first of all, structure is not inherently bad. Like if you think of the four walls of your home as structure, if you're homeschooling, there's a lot of freedom of movement and experimentation within that basic structure. So if by structure you mean just general curriculum guidelines or kind of a very broad framework of, hey, let's kind of try and make sure our child is learning this thing by this age. You know, Hirsch has some great books like what every third grader needs to know, what every fourth grader needs to know. And having just a general guide along the way and some loose structures so that you're pointed in the right direction or at least have uh, as a parent kind of a supplement of things you should consider bringing up with the child, that's fine. But but four walls of your home is different than a straitjacket. Right? Yeah. And when the structure becomes um, the end goal, uh, when it becomes an end unto itself, then I think you don't have that freedom of movement. You become a slave to the system. You become a slave to the structure. You're very constricted. And so uh, what I tried to say, and I don't think I did this well enough, in passion-driven education, it was definitely geared more towards the homeschooling audience where you do have that freedom. But what I tried to say, and at least a little bit did convey, is that these ideas can be incorporated in any system, even in public school. Obviously less so because you do have to varying degrees, structure. If you're in a common core environment, right, you're every day, you got to get through certain things. It's going to be harder as a teacher, for example, to implement these ideas, even though you can do it a little bit. So the structure is not bad. I think it's more, you know, how much structure is there? And are you letting it be more of a supplement to you as a parent? Or is it becoming a you know self-justified end unto itself that you feel you have to keep up with and be guided by and obey 
Uh, if it's there as a supplement, softly, gently, kind of helping you, fine, right? Our, our four walls of our home shield us from the elements. That type of general structure is great. Let's just make sure it's not turning into the straitjacket. Right. So it's just something that exists on the periphery of what you're doing, and the parents can shape it kind of subtly. Yeah, uh, add a new wall to the home, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make you know, the structure the, work for you. Indeed. It reminds me, in the book, you told the story of this Mexican primary school teacher who I had never even heard of before. I'm surprised. His name was Sergio Juarez uh, Correa. And, you know, he, had, he was just getting basically, you know, by the school's own metrics, not impressive results with his students. And it seemed like he uh, adopted... Uh, Mitra's approach, which was m called minimally invasive education. And this was this is a story I think my audience is familiar with, the hole-in-the-wall experiment, where Mitra yeah. in India, um, in, in a really rundown area of New Delhi, set up a just a computer in the wall, and kids kind of self-organized around it and were able to, uh, to teach themselves. So in Correa's story, um, it seems like the classroom is the inevitable structure that he has to work in, but by asking kids this question of what do they want to learn, we realize that uh, there's a, a multitude of possibilities inside that structure. Precisely. It's freedom can be found even within, you know, these these tighter structures. Obviously, Correa in Mexico didn't have common core or some <laughs> of these other top down approaches. So he had a little bit more freedom than many American teachers do. But I didn't want to be discouraging to those who out of necessity. Right. Maybe people can't homeschool. They just don't have the right family Absolutely. circumstances that allow that. So it's not to say that this can't be done or that your children will not love learning if they're in public school. Obviously, there's an ideal. And the more freedom there is, the easier it is to to do this type of approach with your child. But even within systems and structures, you can find opportunities. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I asked, because we love to talk about, you know, educational freedom on my show. But one of the harsh realities, it's very common when, you know, maybe two parents are separated and one of them isn't on board with uh, a lot of these ideas. You do have to talk about school survival. Um, mm -hmm. And and how the parents uh, can maybe even you know work as a correction against some of the destructive influences of school instead of being like enforcement agents for the school outside of the school, which is really unfortunate and um, you know it can be really destructive in the family itself. So that's the uh, the structure question. I'm interested in. I guess God, it's a terrible word because it's such a public school word, but assessment. How do you think parents <laughs> sure. should assess what's happening as they, you know, have this this free education environment? That's a great, great question. And also one that is often asked in these Q&A sessions when I'm uh, speaking on this topic. And, and here's how I answer. Uh, the, there's the question of what you have to do to assess. And there's a question of what should you do? So right. have to do is in many states, if you want to homeschool, for example, there are assessments. And there are legal requirements that have to be satisfied. So there's unfortunately in many cases no way of getting around that. And so you have to just, you know, grit your teeth, go through it, teach to the test even at, at home um, and make sure that the child is learning what's being assessed just in order to 
legally have the freedom to then with the rest of your time and mental energy focus on the things that you or your your child want. So that's the unfortunate legal requirement. But in many states, uh, including where I'm at in Utah, there are no assessment requirements. So it more becomes uh, a secondary question of college admission, right? Then it's like, well, He's going to have to pass the ACT, um, and so you know that's a test I need to teach towards. And, and so then, once again, parents find themselves trying to make sure that they're not merely uh, teaching what they want and what the child wants to learn, but the type of material that will specifically be covered in the assessment. But, of course, now we're in a day when there are many alternatives to college. Uh, many people prefer to avoid that path altogether. Uh, Praxis, uh, your listeners are probably familiar with, I'm yeah. sure, is a fantastic alternative that's uh, booming right now that I'm really excited about. Um, so let's avoid the questions of you know college admission or legal requirements. Then it becomes the parental desire to know and make sure what their children are learning. And this is primarily tied to FOMO, fear of missing out. They want to make sure that children are learning what they need to so they're not falling behind. And, you know, this is a fear-based approach. And a lot, you may recall in, in the book, since it's so fresh in your mind, a lot of the book is geared towards helping parents overcome this fear um, through faith. And, and through being confident that this approach, yeah, your child might not learn the quadratic equation, but they may learn the intricacies of, you know, a, a personal passion that turns into a blossoming career in which they learn all sorts of new things and discover new things. So it's it's getting over as a parent this idea, this very public school idea that you have to teach all these different things that every child needs to learn and you need, need to assess along the way. To answer your question even more succinctly, in the book, towards the beginning, we I, I try and address for parents, what is it that you want your children to learn and to know? What do you want your child children to become? If you want them to become full of facts and information and dates and events and names and so forth, then assessments becomes important to make sure that they are absorbing and retaining that information. But if instead you treat education as I do, and that is the formation of character, uh, the building of a personality, the fostering of critical thinking and curiosity, developing a, a personality of kindness and service and uh, confidence and humor and satisfaction in life, all of these goals that parents almost to a T have for their child – those don't come through assessment, and therefore we need to make sure that our education approach with our children is structured in a way that those goals are being attained, not just information acquisition, but personality development. And so it really causes a, a drastic rethink for the parent as to assessments and say, no, right, there, there is no test that you can take to measure, you know, uh, the the compassion level of my child. We just need to make sure as a parent we're fostering opportunities for those things to be developed um, through experiences and through observation. And so it really helps parents set aside this, this test-oriented approach to make sure that, that you know, the mind is being crammed with every you know, jot and tittle of, of the textbook into enjoying life and being exposed to things along the way so that the child becomes a very well-rounded adult. Absolutely. So a lot of what we're talking about right here is a process of de-schooling for parents themselves, right? And mm -hmm. it seems like it's in a very clear way getting getting rid of some of these, these schooled 
attitudes. And the, and the whole book is really an exercise in, in de-schooling itself, I think you would agree, even though it's just, you know, it's, it's constant but implicit. And I wonder if you've ever talked to people either about the book or just about the larger subject about, um, you know, a, 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 like kind of a condensed de-schooling process or a, a, a more deeper digging de-schooling process. Because, you know, you're a libertarian, I'm a libertarian, we talk to libertarians about these issues, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's like pretty right out on the table, and we think we get it. Like, oh, yeah, of course not. Uh, we wouldn't, you know, infect anyone with these schooled attitudes. But it also seems like there's a lot of things that are much more subtle, right? I catch them in my own thinking a lot. Totally. And I don't know if you've ever guided anyone through through an exploration of those more subtle attitudes, like those programs that kind of run in the background as a result of, you know, uh, multiple systems of domination. Um, but I think school is uh, is probably the biggest. The biggest. And... and uh, in a way, no, um, because as you note, and, and I would concede the same thing, we are a product of our environment and our upbringing. And so those of us who have grown up in a society where this is so prevalent, even as philosophical as we are and as you know hard-lined as we are on the ideas that we espouse, we still find ourselves saying certain things, doing certain things just out of habit, out of experience. And so more what I do with parents is validate that and, and say that it's okay. You don't need to suddenly be the perfect unschooling parent yeah, or anything, yeah. right? Just just recognize that stuff will come up and it's okay. Like, don't worry about it. Really what the point of the book, uh, Passion Driven Education, is is to validate for the parent that, that it's okay to head in this direction. So often what I found is that parents feel alone. Um, they feel isolated. And even if they know there's Facebook groups out there or podcasts out there in their community, right, where they're at, they feel lonely. They don't know. They don't have a mentor. And so the point of the book is to at least have a tangible resource to kind of understand the ideas behind it. Um, going forward, we're going to be doing some community building and and stuff to try and bring a lot of these parents together and, and create kind of a support system around it. But really, it's it's helping parents understand, look, it's okay to, you know, believe this way. It's, in fact, a wonderful thing. Um, here's kind of justification for why you've made this decision so you feel validated in that. And then recognize that, like you just said, those things are going to come up, you know, for a long time. What I found, though, is de-schooling. Uh, so often when I first learned about de-schooling um, and was exposed to the whole concept, it was about the children, mm -hmm. right? You need Your children need time to adjust. But children are very resilient, right? Like, if a child gets hurt, you know, five minutes later, they're fine. If, you know, you do something as a parent uh, and, and you hurt their feelings or are, are very, uh, you know, you punish them excessively, you know, the next day they're, they've rebounded in, in so many cases. Children are naturally resilient. It's us adults that have to be de-schooled, yeah. right? Like, and so I've kind of turned that idea on its head to say it's not for them. It's for you, parents. You need to have this time to really get used to the idea that you don't need a test. You don't need a textbook. You don't need a teacher. You don't need a system. You can do this. And that takes longer for the adult than the child. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's well said. So uh, I had one more question along those lines, and it's kind of uh, very relevant to our age. It's about uh, protection 
in um, an unschooling or just a, a freer home education environment, a passion-driven education environment, because I, I plan to put a very uh, clear definition to that in the monologue that I do before I release the show. But basically what you're driving at in this book is what I've described as using the momentum of the intrinsic motivation of the learner, right? Yeah. To, at, at times, in the case of... Uh, you talk about, gosh, I forget his name. He was a 13-year-old boy. I tried to get him on the show when he was uh, making all the headlines for- Logan, I believe. Logan, yeah, for his hack schooling. Yeah, um, Logan LaPlante. Yeah, so Logan LaPlante was this young man who uh, basically took this approach to his learning of you know centering everything on a specific interest. I think in his case, it was skiing. And from there- uh, he just said, all right, well, now if I want to you know, translate this to something else, I just have to replicate the method. And I think uh, in a separate subject, it's very helpful to make a method of learning explicit once you've done it, once you've used the momentum of a, a intrinsic motivation to you know, pursue something towards mastery. But um, in this, this passion, right, uh, there's going to be a lot of exploration and kids are maybe at times going to move faster than uh, parents can keep up with to whatever extent they're trying to monitor or keep up mm -hmm. with what their kids are doing. We live in a world today where there are a lot of uh, <laughs> opinion shaping interests, mostly online and in the entertainment media. I'm even thinking about like, you know, you talked about your kids playing Angry Birds and learning from Angry Birds. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a one or two online games on my phone and I'm even getting messages from the ads, you know, that pop up in between. So right. this is something that I've become increasingly concerned about, again, as I was just uh, juggling course ideas, something about, you know, a kind of intellectual and emotional self-defense from the things that kids are exposed to. Totally. Uh, uh, just through their own, um, you know, vigorous exploration of the world. We've, we've I, talked about how much people love to get their hands on the minds of uh, the impressionable right. minds of kids. So what, what do you say to that, the concerns around uh, protection from these kinds of influences? Such an important point. Uh, and, and obviously, any loving parent is going to have that as a concern about exposure and what types of things and environments and people and ideas will will my child be exposed to. Um, and something I've thought a lot about, right? Like I'm a loving parent. I've got two little kids and it's something that I, I worry about for them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll put it this way. And I say this in the book that unschooling, if we just want to call it that for a moment, unschooling is not and does not require unparenting. And and so often what I see in, in some radical unschoolers is disengagement in many ways, treating children like they're adults. And what we know from brain development is that that's not true at all. The rational centers of our brain and logical thinking does not really come until your early 20s. Mm -hmm. And so children cannot be treated as adults. Certainly we can, you know, piece by piece expose them and, and, you know, encourage them to be independent and lead them along the way. But we as parents still need to be cautious. We still need to oversee. We still need to protect them from being exposed to things. So, so that's number one is parents should be engaged. You shouldn't just disengage because you're unschooling. Um, the other thing is that I think we need to concede that whatever our children do, they're going to be exposed to things. It's not that yeah. if my child is playing Angry Birds or getting involved in theater 
or whatever it may be that, yeah, they'll be exposed to some bad stuff, but what's the alternative, right? Like what, let's put this in context. If that child were just to go to school and do, you know, what's normal, for example, they're going to be exposed perhaps to similar things and much worse. When you look at the toxic environment that's in many of our schools, the highly sexually charged environment, the drugs, the bullying, the everything else, and we talk about this in the book too, that that toxic environment that so many of these children find themselves in, in many ways, that's why parents are homeschooling, is to protect the child and shield them from that very acerbic environment. Um, so I think we need to recognize as parents that our children are growing up in what might be termed a fallen world, like you yeah. know, a world full of debauchery and and uh, deception. There's there's physical threats, sexual threats, psychological, emotional, intellectual threats. So I don't have all the answers. I'm as a parent still trying to figure that out myself. I think at a minimum, as a baseline, we just need to recognize that whatever the education approach, there are going to be exposures to things that we object to or have concerns with. We as parents just need to be engaged. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really well said. And in the book, you know, I, I think there's um, a lot of encouragement, obviously, to couple this kind of free exploration with critical thinking, you know, which which can solve, a, you know, certainly yeah. once a child reaches a certain age, can solve a lot of those uh, problems or address a lot of those concerns that we're talking about with protection. In the book, you talk about inquiry over information. So, you know, we're set up if we go through the schooling process and you can see how, you know, I mean, mainstream media and lots of aspects of online media are just perfect reinforcements for this quote unquote information uh, absorption, uh, you know, uncritically. You know, like I'm, I'm really surprised. I, I wound up, I never do this, and I really encourage people from getting involved in arguments on Facebook, but. Uh, I, I got in one because it was just so irresistible, and I was stunned by the articles that people were linking to me, and you know the glaring uh, problems with the you know the research they they pointed out, and you know coming at these things, even especially 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 from the things that you're compelled to move towards or agree with, um, in a spirit of inquiry instead of information absorption. Is, is really, really important. I've watched a lot of young children just sit uh, in front of media the same way I imagine they sit in their desks at school, um, yeah. just almost inert, you know? Passive. Yeah. yeah. So I really liked the way you outlined the uh, the critical thinking process in in the book. I do I do encourage people to go and uh, get a copy of the book. So I don't want to you know give everything away here. It's only 180 pages, and um, it really I thought it lined up nicely your exploration with it uh, with our study of the trivium method, mm -hmm. the input process output uh, method of learning and critical thinking, valuing the process of discovery was, I think, the way you said well, it, as and, much and as let, the result. And let me riff off of what you said a moment ago. I, I think it's uh, the, the inertness or the uh, passivity, uh, passiveness with which, you know, children treat learning. Uh, to me, it um, or what you just mentioned with the online arguing and people, you know, they, they think they know and they latch on to just this little factoid or uh, you know, fake news, I guess, as it's now being called. Right. Right. And, and there's so much arrogance. Even for myself, I'm not trying to put myself up on a pedestal. I think as human nature, we so often think we're right once we ha find information that validates the idea that we had, even if that information is false. And the thing I like about 
inquiry over information, of, of critical thinking over information absorption and, and retention is that it shifts it from arrogance to humility, recognizing that we don't know everything, that we are curious, always open to being challenged and learning more about the world around us. Uh, you mentioned the iPencil or, or our Tuttle Twins version, Miraculous Pencil. The thing that I like most about that book is that so often in our society, children are growing up with an entitlement mentality right? Uh, they, they have an iPad, they have, you know, three cars in their family, they have whatever clothes they want, food just shows up on their table. Right. And when I read that book with my children, when we were first writing it, we started at the dinner table to do what Leonard Reed does in the essay with the pencil, is to examine all the many different parts and processes and people involved in the pencil. So we'd sit down at dinner, and we'd say, okay, who and what was involved in this meal? And we'd talk about the farmer and the grocery guy and the business owner and the, you know, delivery guy and like all the people who worked together to bring us this meal. And it shifted it from an entitlement and an expectation to wonder and awe that all of those people were involved. And so that's what this approach of passion-driven education can do for children, for uh, for a parent's child is shifting it from just here are all these things you need to learn and hey once you learn you know 80 facts suddenly you're the smartest guy in the world and you can go broadcast that on Facebook and argue with people yeah it, it shifts it to this perpetual state of curiosity and humility which I think as a parent is what we want for our child absolutely yeah that's such an important point right now uh, this delay of gratification. I think it's kind of the lack of having that delay of gratification or that entitlement, having that entitlement mentality that you spoke about is really polluting a lot of intellectual discussions because I don't know if this has always been the case and it's just getting worse. People don't have the patience for dissenting opinions or other ideas or the the discomfort of not knowing something. So they just are settling on easier and easier explanations for things, it seems. And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on, on my show talking about the higher education and kind of with almost this resentment, like these are the kids I really wanted to rele reach with this message and look at them, like, what are they doing? What are they thinking? <laughs> and I said in a show recently, oh, I get it. You know, none of these kids have ever had to wait in the line at Blockbuster Video, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like I mean, and, and just expand that to a thousand examples, you know, things that we're old enough to remember that they never had to live through. Uh, and, the and, world is at their fingertips. And Brett, what you asked before about protecting children, it, it's not always protecting children from like these horrible, nefarious, you know, things and, and whatever. It's protecting them from from the very world in which they live. Because if we just naturally go through life, the exact examples you talk about are going to lead to outcomes we don't like. If all we do is let our children be bathed in this society of instant gratification, can we really expect that our children will turn into entitled brats? Yeah. Right. If we don't intervene and and do something different as parents. Absolutely. Well said. So I have one more uh, question before uh, we wrap up today. I've Please. told this story about what you call passion-driven education several times on my show. About five years ago, I was working as kind of a facilitator with this unschooled boy. He was nine. And he had had some time in public school, which produced a real aversion to reading and math, all things academic, basically. But he was obsessed with aliens 
uh, UFO abductions and cryptids. And mm. all his attention went in this direction. And I just had to kind of ride that momentum where it was going to go as a facilitator who was working with him as kind of a liaison for the school. I used to do tutoring uh, before I started doing the show full time. So this was my job. And I was reporting to the school about what we were doing. But the whole time, I'm just basically surfing the waves of his his attention and trying as a good facilitator to make learning opportunities where they existed. And we found, you know, geolocation, math, history, literature, like so many areas got explored just from following this nine-year-old boy. I even got show content out of it because he was introducing me to topics. You know, I did a show. He was he loved the idea that uh, the moon landing was fake. And I said, that's ridiculous. And then I started looking into it. I said, at least it's interesting, you know. <laughs> so I, I did a logical fallacy show about the Apollo hoax. Um, and um, I've told that story so many times, but I'm reading the book and you've got a story almost like very, very similar to that about Star Wars. Oh, yeah. No. So the, the fun thing here, first recognize that children have different passions and that even the same child will have different passions either simultaneously or They'll, they'll change over time. So my my son, as I mentioned in the book, and he, he still mostly has these same passions now, uh, is Angry Birds and Star Wars. And now it's a lot of Harry Potter. Mm. The nice thing about overlapping passions is that you have different universes, to you know, different languages with which to speak to your child. And so Angry Birds, it was hard for me to figure out a way to talk about political philosophy, government, you know, and but with Star Wars, holy cow, it's super easy, right? You, why did the Republic devolve into the Empire? What forces were at play that caused this to happen? What historical examples are there of that very thing happening? What is it about human nature that leads not only to the desire by some to acquire power, but the the actions of the many to become submissive and tolerant right. to that. What examples do we see in our own day? I mean, and obviously all the basics, reading, writing, arithmetic, you can do all sorts of things with any passion, including Star Wars. You can, you know, multiply, a, a, what do they call them, the phalanx or the, you know, the grid of all the, you know, marching stormtroopers. Okay, 10 by 8. Oh, there's 80 there. There's just so many easy ways to tie in learning into any different subject. Obviously, in the book, you know, we rattle off many other examples as well um, that parents might, either their children might have. Um, the funnest thing for me is getting challenged. Like, uh, I'll get messages on Facebook. My my children, my child has an, a passion with, you know, insects. How would you do passion-driven education? With, and so always kind of being challenged and, and asked for ideas. It's fun. But just like you're the student that you mentored with my son, it, it's so fun because when you let them follow that passion, and, and let me sell it on this specific point, and we talk about this in the book as well. What I find to be most problematic in education is that we speak to children in foreign languages. We speak to them in, in the, the, the language of algebra or the language of philosophy or the language of social studies. And children haven't yet gotten mastery in those languages. And so it's sure. literally as if we send them to a foreign country and suddenly, you know, think that they're going to understand other people there. The beauty of using, you know, 
the moon landing or Star Wars or whatever the passion is, is it enables you to speak to that child in a language with which they already have mastery. And you're helping them gain exposure and familiarity and new information about a world they already love. You know, it's been a year or so since I wrote the book. I had been speaking on this topic for years before. And so now over the course of a few years, I've seen many more examples of parents doing this. And I'll tell you, the joy and the excitement that comes out of it is almost palpable because parents are validating and participating in the child's passion rather than the child being told, no, that's an obsession, put it away, you need to go do your homework or Mm -hmm. you need to go do those worksheets. And so when there's that freedom and permission to just follow that path, wherever it leads, there's so much, much satisfaction with on the child's part. There's bonding on the part of the parent and the child because the child feels that the parent cares about what they care about. And the parent is emboldened and enabled because they have new languages with which to communicate to their child. So I see so many upsides to this approach. And, you know, don't call it passion of an education, call it unschooling, call it whatever, hack schooling, whatever you want. The whole idea here is recognizing that there's a natural way to learn and that children naturally love learning. So our responsibility as parents is not to conform and twist and shape them into, you know, the 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 shape and the form that society thinks they ought to be in and the way that they ought to learn, but recognizing that maybe there's something to it that we can uh, leverage and build upon that natural desire uh, so that that child continues to love learning throughout their life. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I try to offer on this show is, um, you know, I mean, first of all, the arguments against school, but then some of the practical approaches to, you know, what the alternatives are. But I really like to give people, you know, better ways uh, or suggest better ways of advocating for this. And um, I feel like this discussion today uh, provided a lot of great advice to that end. The book uh, provides even more. Uh, is the best way for people to get it just to go to connorboyack.com? Uh, it's on Amazon. That's probably the best way. So you can get Prime delivery and get it in your hands pretty quick. It's on Kindle and everything too. Awesome. So here's some things that we didn't get to today that I hope uh, I could get you back to talk about. You are the the founder of the Libertas Institute, right? Yep. I would see we I'm kind of uh, not very political. I'm totally not very politically active, but I know there's some people in the audience who are. And I know you guys have done a lot of good work uh, in Utah at the state level around um, reducing regulations for home education. So I mm-hmm. think that's a topic that we could explore in the future. And while I was going through your website, I also found that you wrote a book called Feardom, How mm-hmm. Politicians Exploit Your Emotions and What You Can Do to Stop Them. Good God, that uh, should be at the top <laughs> of the New York Times bestseller list right now. So um, maybe in the future, I really enjoyed the discussion. I'd love to have you back. And those are, uh, those are two things that we could get into. I would even I be willing to, if a bunch of people in my audience read the book, uh, maybe we could do like a live Q&A at some point in the future where people That'd could be awesome. share ideas with you. That sounds great. All right. Well, I really appreciate the discussion, Connor. Great way to start my day. And yeah, I wish you the best of luck with getting this book out there and this message out there. And yeah, we'll reconvene at some time in the future for another discussion. I appreciate you having me on, Brett. Thanks very much. Okay. How efficient was that? I never did wind up working with Connor again on the School Sucks podcast after this episode back in 2017. 
but I guess there's always opportunities to collaborate in some way, in some form in the future. If you are interested in any of the books that were mentioned in this conversation, that includes Passion Driven Education, uh, Feardom, or uh, the Tuttle Twins series of books for young people, they're all linked in the show notes. And I would ask that you enter Amazon to buy them through those links. In fact, this is probably the easiest way to support the School Sucks Project to shop with us through our Amazon link. And I wanna just take a second to make a distinction between advertising and affiliate relationships. People say, well, is Praxis an, an advertiser of your show? No, when podcasts have advertising, they are selling their audience to advertisers. Affiliates are when you try to sell services you believe in to your audience. If you're successful as a podcaster in that, then you do get a little bit of a kickback. And same is true with Amazon. If you just go bookmark our enter through school sucks and shop at Amazon link, boy, if everybody did that, I'd be rich. And it can certainly start with you. I do want to say too, I have nothing against advertising. Lots of podcasts that I love have lots of ads on them. Uh, but from the beginning, I just always thought in this case, it was more genuine for school sucks to be a listener supported community. And that kind of a feedback loop is always really important to me to know that the work that I am doing is valuable. If I had another podcast, it would probably have advertising on it. Trust me, it's very lucrative. Another way that you can help and get a bunch of great additional content worth your time and attention and even get involved in some of the School Sucks community is to support us on Patreon. At the two higher membership tiers, you'll get some access to me if you have direct questions about anything you're hearing here. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash school sucks. And I don't wanna leave without mentioning Praxis. Connor mentioned it during the show. It's mentioned probably 500 times in the history of School Sucks. You are gonna hear from several uh, Praxis people in this section of uh, the essential school sucks on leaving institutional school and finding educational alternatives. That of course includes alternatives to college. And as I have said, Praxis is currently the most viable alternative to college as far as giving energetic, enthusiastic, entrepreneurial and imaginative young people a way around the increasingly costly college path. So visit Praxis. And right now you can get a free book giving away some of their best advice gained through the years of helping young people uh, in this pursuit. It is called Forward Tilt. It's linked right in the show notes for this episode. I also just want to say a quick thanks to Vignesh R for increasing his monthly support on Patreon. Thank you to everybody who supports us there. It is really, really helpful right now with all the time I am setting aside to curate this collection of shows. All right, we'll be back soon with more in this section of The Essential School Sucks. Thanks for listening and take care.